Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Kate Forrester. Whoa, 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 whoa. what's going on here? Uh, well, it's 100 years since women got the vote. I don't care, you're not doing my show, get out. Unbelievable. This week on Commons People. Sexist. <laughs> it's about time Theresa stood up to them and slung them out. Calls for deselections, but this time in the Tory party. I think, yeah, we do need to have a behaviour code for Parliament and part of the induction process will be straightforwardly understanding what that is. The scale of bullying and harassment of MP staff is revealed. So instead of the words, why don't you actually do something? Why don't you give some money back? And Carillion bosses read the riot act by Rachel Reeves. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett. And this week I'm joined by Ned Simons. Hello, Ned. Hi, I'm. Mr. Paul. How are you, Paul? Fine, thanks. And the mutineer herself, Kate Forrester. How are you, Kate? Not too bad, thanks. Good, 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 good. Let's crack on. Uh, This week, the wise heads in Cabinet got together to discuss what it is the UK actually wants from Brexit. Two meetings were held at the 11 Strong Cabinet Subcommittee to discuss this most fundamental of questions. Now, we record this pretty much as a second meeting takes place in which the future relationship with the EU will be discussed. May will be hoping it's more productive than the first meeting on immigration and Northern Ireland, which was described as robust and that people lived up to their stereotypes by someone in the room. But ahead of the get-together, Tory Remainer Anna Soubry launched an extraordinary attack on her Brexiteer colleagues in an interview on Newsnight. She starts by talking about the Tory front bench. It's in hop to 35 hard ideological Brexiteers who are not Tories. They're not the Tory party that I joined 40 years ago. And it's about time Theresa stood up to them and slung them out. Because they've taken down Major, they took down Cameron, two great leaders, neither of whom stood up to them. And the time has come for the the moderates, the centrists in the Conservative Party, dare I use the expression, to take control of our party. So, is Theresa May in hock to 35 hardcore Brexiteers? Is that what's causing the problems at the moment, Paul? Or is she actually doing a very good job at balancing all these different views on Brexit? Well, obviously, there's the reality that she's got a no majority in Parliament. That's the starting point. And so everything goes back to to the general election last year. That's why she's got no majority. That's why, obviously, uh, the Brexiteers, the hardline Brexiteers, have got much more leverage against her. But ultimately, it's not those 35... Brexiteers, hardliners, whatever you want to call them, that she really is in hock to. She's in hock to making sure that the people who voted, the 17 million people who voted leave, actually don't feel betrayed. That's the, that's the reason she's prime minister. She never forgets that. That's the reason that actually, despite last general election, she's still prime minister, because she thinks that the only way of surviving is by delivering on that vote. And 
Um, that's why I think it's it's sort of a bit superficial to suggest somehow she's the the strings are being pulled by you know the European Research Group or Jacob Rees-Mogg or whatever. That that's really what's driving it, and that that will be what determines the outcome of this Brexit subcommittee. Isn't it strange though, Kate, that we're in a situation where what basically a year now till Brexit, and it's only now the cabinet are getting together to have a kind of blank whiteboard kind of conversation, drawing some spider diagrams maybe about what it actually is we want from Brexit. Yeah, I mean, it's quite it's quite stark, really, isn't it? I think it seems that even a lot of politicians are now sort of only just coming around to the idea of, oh, okay, this is actually happening, it's real. Um, it does worry me. It does worry me. I don't feel like we're particularly well prepared at the moment. Do you? Mm. <laughs> is that the Liz, not, not Liz Trust response? <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think it's interesting that they're, they're having these conversations now. And it seems to me, then, I don't know if you agree, that because they haven't had these conversations before, it's created a vacuum. And in that vacuum, it allows Philip Hammond to talk about very modestly moving away from EU rules. It allows Jacob Rees-Mogg well, and that lot to talk about completely leaving the customs well, union. Is yeah, that, a, is that a course. fair assessment? Because if they, if they think that the final decision on what we want hasn't been made, which it hasn't, then, of course, each side's going to still be battling for what they want, whether that's in cabinet or on the back benches. So if they had made a decision earlier, which I guess they couldn't because of the warring factions, maybe it would have shut down this the kind of turmoil the party's been in for the last, well, two weeks particularly. But you're right, they made, until they make a choice... They're not going. No side's going to give up, are they? I don't see a sign of Subi backing down or Rees Mogg backing down. Or I also think that you know, obviously, it's in the PM's interest to have this, you know, constructive ambiguity. David Davis's phrase um, in what the government's actually going to go ahead with. It's just the same for Labour. Don't forget, you know, we've seen all this polling where, in, in the last week, which we had our own poll, which suggested that if Labour was really honest and said, right, we really are going to be backing Brexit the next election, Labour's vote plunges, Lib Dem vote goes up. So Labour's not going to say that publicly but equally for the government um you know to be fair to theresa may so far she's held it together she's Is that a, by annoying everyone equally no i partly just by simply fudging it and fudge is you know a, a great brussels product let's be honest <laughs> um, and and but the thing is oh, it, very good. At, at the end of the day that fudge can't be there forever and that's why come autumn this year there's going to be some sort of concrete plan but even in that concrete plan to, to get us muddling through brexit getting us through approved through this meaningful vote in in the commons before brexit next year i suspect that won't be detailed because some of this stuff is so crunchy that you know it, crunchy it's, it's, it's very <laughs> difficult it's very very difficult <laughs> to do just have your fudge you, you can't fudge. that's my point it's not fudgy it, it, at the end of the day it's got to be really crunchy it's got to have details going to say specifically are we going to have exact re- alignment with europe on the financial services a massive massive industry and on other services you know what what's the advantage of divergence with the eu i was on the plane last week with the pm in china and as you all mentioned on the podcast did you listen um, back i did while the cat's away no, and on that trip what was interesting is that yeah there were lots of businesses who were actually entrepreneurial and doing all the right things that businesses should be doing and should have been doing for ages liam fox is right you know british businesses haven't been pulling the finger out in terms of exports beyond the eu but we kept coming back to the question well you can do all this and remain within the EU. You can still expand your trade with China. That's what Germany's been doing for years. That's what French have been doing. What's the advantage that a business is going to get from us being outside the EU and selling abroad? Um, and that is difficult. Unless someone comes up with a proper answer on that, 
it's going to be tough. And that's what the C. I mean, mentioned this before when the CBI uh, director general gave a speech to that effect earlier this year, saying until you can prove that trade outside the customs union is greater than trade in it, why not just send the customs union? The responses from people like Boris Johnson were not. Well, here's loads of proof. It was oh, you're just you're just EU-funded CBI, and it was it was very much playing the man or the woman in Caroline Fairbairn's case. Talking about um, well, trade and also Labour's position. It was yesterday when Stephen Hammond, who's a backbench Tory, a very pro-Remain Tory, revealed he's going to put amendments down to the trade bill. If they get picked, that'll be a vote on staying in EFTA. Now, there's quite a few Tory backbenchers who I think will vote with that. Your Anna Tubries and so on, and it's interesting to see what Labour do if. If that comes to a vote, because that will again that will expose Labour's fudged, for want of a better word, yeah. position on Brexit, because that will really make it clear whether they're siding with essentially Theresa May or with this chance to say no, we want uh, to a more kind of single market based Brexit. Uh, but EFTA is a slight is a slight false thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because EFTA itself is just the collection of the countries in it. It doesn't mean because you're in EFTA you have to be part no, of the single market. If, I mean, if you're in EFTA, you it, can join the EEA, and if you're in exactly, the EEA, so you have Swiss, access so to the market. for example, is only part of Parts sure. of the single market, so there is maybe a little bit of room for both sides. Yes, there. I know what you mean, but it certainly be it'd be a hell of a sort of change of tact, wouldn't it? Um, there's been other reports come out this week uh, from the Public Accounts Committee, which says that civil servants have been too slow in making vital preparations for Brexit. It says they must cut back on other projects and prioritise EU withdrawal as a matter of urgency. Uh, the report said the real world will not wait for the government to get its house in order. I mean, this is th- astonishing that people are saying that more time and effort should be put on Brexit. I was talking to Tory MPs this week who were actually tearing their hair out that, that other things aren't getting but, a look in. It's just sucking but, all the power out of Whitehall. It's interesting that, isn't it, I think, in the sense that what the government really needs to be doing is Brexit. That is the big thing that will affect everything else. But politically, Tory politicians don't really want to touch it because as we've just been discussing, no one really knows what the policy is. And it's kind of easier, perhaps, to focus on you know domestic policies, on new ideas that they think are more kind of electorally friendly as well as things they care about. So there's definitely a split there. There was a report before Christmas as well about how the turnover in uh, Brexit department is the highest in the whole of the civil service. So obviously there's a big issue for them in terms of having experienced staff who are who know the background of all the issues that they're facing. If, you know, people are leaving after a few months then that's really, really difficult for them. And there's a big problem here in that actually if you're a Brexiteer Obviously, the voters are saying, get on with it. They're saying, get on with it. They have to accept the reality there's going to be a transition to get ready for it. Um, but if you if you really were keen on making a success of Brexit, you really, really would have a longer transition period. And to do all this stuff, to tool up, to get the right negotiators for Liam Fox's team, to get experienced in civil servants working out what the exact details are of, of, of things like financial services and agriculture and fisheries. And it's phenomenally complicated 3D puzzle this. It's going to take time to do. And yet we've given ourselves just quotes about two years to do it. And the very people who would benefit most from more time from getting it right are the people who unfortunately feel that there's a political imperative to get on with it. But they put that political imperative upon themselves, haven't yeah. they? Because I think if they went out if they went out there, if the Boris Johnsons of this world, the Michael Goves, the Liam Foxes, the Reese Moggs went out there and said, Look, we're gonna need a four or five year transition, but don't worry, we're not going soft on Brexit. You could probably sell that. I mean it'd be diff- you know, UKIP might get a bit of a bump in the polls, but I think people would accept I think they could possibly and this is a possible I think you politically could just about get away with leaving as unscheduled. Article 50 will leave next March, okay? We're out of the European Union. 
but you keep the transition until the next general election in 2022. I think politically that's possible because you then you go to the country in 2022 and you say, look, now we're actually formally, finally leaving and we've got a plan for you and you can vote on it. And, th- and forget meaningful vote. That would be the genuine meaningful vote for this country. Leave it t- to a general election. It's not a second referendum. Three-year transition without it's any It's basically the rules. a lot of the people in business say three-year transition would work. A lot of people in Brussels might just extend to that. And I, in my opinion, that might tie up these economic and political problems that people have got. But hey, what do I know? <laughs> oh, quite a lot, Mr. Paul, in my opinion. <laughs> He says, "Make it up for last week." very <laughs> bad from last week's comments. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on now uh, to a report which came out on Thursday, which revealed that nearly one in five people working in Westminster have experienced or witnessed sexual harassment, um, and politicians found guilty of it could face the sack under new rules. The survey, ordered by Commons leader Andrea Leadsom in the wake of a raft of allegations about inappropriate behaviour, also revealed 39% of all MPs, peers, and staff experienced non-sexual harassment or bullying in the last year alone twice as many women as men experience incidents and more than half of politician staff said they had experienced witnessed or heard of bullying and harassment during their employment uh, the survey had 1377 responses so uh, quite a lot and here is uh, lib dem deputy leader joe swinson explaining to uh, bbc radio 4 today programs john humphreys on why the reforms are needed with a little sting in the tail as well let's have a listen In the same way that we have training about the current code of uh, conduct and sessions when we arrive in Parliament, then I think, yeah, we do need to have a behaviour code for Parliament. And part of the induction process will be straightforwardly understanding what that is. And just while I've got you here, John, can I just ask, have you apologised to Carrie Gracie for the remarks that you made about her courageous stance on equal pay? Immediately after that exchange, yes, I did. As a matter of fact, and she replied. Very glad to hear that. Quite what this has to do with uh, what we're discussing here, I fail to see. But there we are. That is answered your question. Wouldn't be the first time there'd been a a question thrown in at the end of an interview. Well, it it, it wouldn't, but usually they're slightly more relevant because this is entirely irrelevant. However, there we are. I've answered your question, Joe Swinson. Thank you. That was great, wasn't it? When she just put that to John Humphreys there I at the end. That, and he, yeah. he did not like that one bit, did he? No, wasn't How keen. How dare you question me? Wasn't keen. You typed up this report, Kate. Talk us through it, because it seems to be that there's going to be enhanced protections for victims and new complaints procedures. What else is there? Yeah, so basically people who um, have been involved in cases or have made complaints or had incidents raised raised with them want to see a complaints process that's independent of political parties because they say that if as and when you involve your party at the moment your main your sort of main recourse for reporting something is to the party that you work for um obviously if it's a high profile mp if it's a politician there's then difficulties for the party itself in terms of how it's going to handle any fallout how it's going to handle the whole issue and how it's going to respond to the complaint properly so they want a proper independent system somebody based in parliament um to deal with these complaint complaints that's completely um, removed from any particular party. And in terms of the sacking of MPs, they're thinking of saying that if someone is found guilty of this, they can be banned from sitting in the Commons for I think three weeks, isn't it? Which, under existing legislation, automatically triggers a recall ballot in that constituency, is that right? Yeah, that is right. I think it's quite complex in terms of only under certain situations would a recall ballot be triggered. And what, what certain parties' views are on that, we don't really know yet. Um, so the views of Labour and the Tories, for example, is going to make up a big part of what happens next going forward. Um, I think most people agree that this is quite a good start, um, but others, including Sophie Walker, 
um, who's the Women's Equality Party leader, and John Mann, who is a Labour MP who sort of lobbied very heavily for improved reporting and um, improved processes around this, have basically said it's lame, it doesn't go far enough. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems that, you know, it, it's, a, it's a start, that's what we've seen today, but there's a lot of unfinished detail in there, uh, particularly on recall, what mechanism there would be, you know, which is the ordinary punter out there is thinking, right, OK, if my, if my Damien Green is my local MP, if he's not fit to be a cabinet minister or if he's if he's... Michael Fallon. Why is he still my MP? If he's not, well, his own definition, Michael yeah. Fallon said he wasn't fit yeah. to be a cabinet minister. If he's not yeah. fit to be a cabinet minister, if he's not fit to be in government, why is he fit to still be my MP? And the answer has got to be well, there's got to be some mechanism whereby that um, the parties agree that Parliament actually should have some sort of independent say over the recall process and. And whether you can trigger that quickly and smoothly, I don't know. Parties are going to be quite resistant. I'd quite like to hear what some of the... And there's quite a lot of Tory MPs who are now ministers, I think including David Davis, I'll have to check, who was signed on with Zach Goldsmith's plans to strengthen the recall bill that was brought in by the coalition, saying it didn't go far enough. Mm. You know, So it's quite interesting that a lot of those Tories that at the time weren't in government and now have found themselves in government, whether they'll respond to this... In, in a good way, in a strengthening the recall or, or staying quiet. It's strange, actually, because it's yet another bit of David Cameron yeah. sort of uh, jiggery-pokery yeah. that actually, um, uh, pardon the praise, but that actually was designed for something else. At the time, it was designed to say, oh, in opposition, well, let's have something shiny, like radical, let's, mm. and let's have sort of recall. But then when it push came it to shove... It was over expenses, wasn't it? This sort yeah, of it was over yeah. the expenses. Let's distance ourselves. Let's be a brand new sort of radical opposition, breath of fresh air. When it pushed came to shove, people like Douglas Carswell, mm. people like Zach Goldsmith were pushing a really quite... American style, very quick recall, and Cameron, Cameron's product at the end of that was, well, that that's far too radical. And it just reminded me a bit of him going along with the whole idea of having a referendum at all in Europe. That you know, he he had a short term solution that actually long term could have real repercussions. <laughs> the same for him with um, open primaries, and then he got Sarah Wollaston and changed his mind. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely right. Um, the, we heard a clip of John Humphreys there. How prevalent, Paul? You, you've been around Westminster many, many months now. I how, think he's calling you old. How, how prevalent is is the John Humphreys attitude of we don't need this kind of? Well, so let me rephrase that. Which is John Humphreys' line of questioning? But we don't know about his attitude that we don't need this kind of stuff, and we you know MPs should now pay themselves, and it doesn't need reform. I mean, what? what isn't there's a lot of that with some MPs. It's changed a lot, I think, in the since 2015. <coughs> so the pre 2015 intake, and and even some of those, the older men particularly. Yeah, I mean, John Humphreys definitely rems that represents that strand of opinion, and it's not just Tories; it's certainly Labour as well. And you know, there's a trade union Labour male macho culture where, which we let's not forget, there are a lot of women in the Labour Party have had to deal with over the years, um, which says, look, oh, surely defining sexual harassment means I can't ask a girl out on a date, isn't that? ridiculous yeah, how are you asking these girls it's out on dates then it's like, yeah. i mean to most people you know I, i'm older than everyone else in this room but even i think it's utterly ridiculous that you could think there's a problem that somehow it's not a simple question that there's a big difference between sexual harassment and asking someone else on a date it's you know kind of obvious um, obviously this week uh, was a hundred years since some women uh, got the vote and there was lots of um, sort of events to mark this in and around Parliament which is uh, fantastic to see everyone wearing these rosettes that suffragettes used to wear Is there a quiz coming on? Then, well, oh god you're reading my mind but first of all here's <laughs> Amber Rudd responding to a little bit of mansplaining from Chris Bryant in the comments oh, when good, she's yeah. giving a statement here we go I would ask you to look up 
Look up and remember that before 1834, women could only watch proceedings in this House through a ventilation shaft right in the middle of the ceiling. After this palace was rebuilt, thank you, because of the great fire in 1834, so so useful to be corrected by a helpful gentleman here, (laughs) things improved, but not much. Wonderful. All the times, Chris Bryant, just to keep your mouth shut, mate. I I love Chris (laughs) Bryant. He knows stuff about Parliament, but just sometimes, just, just bite your tongue. There is a quiz coming on. This week's quiz is called Suffragette City. Bowie. Can we have a clip of Bowie? Uh, You want to pay the music? Do we have to pay for that? Can someone get me the guitar? I'll play it. I'm going to ask you some questions to see how much you know about uh, female MPs in Parliament. Okay. Who was the first MP elected to Parliament? First MP or first woman MP? Sorry, good question. Who was the first (laughs) woman MP elected to Parliament? Christ, was it was it a Pankhurst? There's a shot in the dark. Okay, do you know? Was it Sylvia Pankhurst? No, Ned? No, I don't know. I do, I, I feel like I do. Is she called Mary? No. No, dumb. Uh, she was Constance Markovic, and she was a Sinn Féin member of Parliament who didn't take her seat. When was that? Uh. That was 1918, 1918 general uh. election. Who was the first woman to take her seat in Parliament? To take a seat in Parliament? To take a seat, yeah. Was that Sylvia Pankhurst? No. Ned? I don't know. This is shocking, this is, guys. Yeah, this is going to really be awful. bad. Kate? Okay. I don't know. Nancy Astor. Nancy ah, Astor, of course. A by-election yes. in okay. December 1919 yeah. Yeah. Uh, for Plymouth Sutton. Her husband, Waldorf Astor, a former MP, was elevated to the peerage. So, yeah. Who was the second woman to be elected? <laughs> it's going to be a long quiz. <laughs> oh, I yeah. thought the Astor God. thing was like a trick and it wasn't no. actually her first. Yeah, I don't make out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that's working out. The second woman. If this is a Pankhurst, I'll be really annoyed. Go on, Paul. So I'm going to say Sylvia Pankhurst. No. Uh, Kate, <laughs> do you know? Second woman? No, I don't know. It's Ned? really no, awful. No, I don't know. Margaret Wintringham, who won the Louth by-election in 1921 for the Liberals. Oh. But only MP for three years. So the first three female MPs were Sinn Féin, Tory and Liberals. Not mm. looking good, Labour isn't looking mm. good. Who well, was the Tories have got a great record they on have, women in power. Who was the first uh, female cabinet minister? I'm oh. tempted to say Barbara Castle, but yeah. was it Jenny Lee? No. Barbara Castle? No. It? No, okay. I thought it was Barbara no, Castle. No, this is awful. This is Margaret Bonfield, Minister for Labour in 1929. What's annoying is you, Whoa. you said that name as if it's the first time you've <laughs> ever read it. It's not like you're just... Who was the first woman to be Minister for Education? Come on then, Paul. Was it Margaret Thatcher? No. I want a big like QI style, like... <laughs> Hey, who was the first woman to be Minister of Education? Mm, God. No, it wasn't God. Uh, although God is a woman, of course. Uh, Ned, it was pretend. Ellen Wilkinson, Red Ellen Wilkinson, in 1945. But she died two years later, sadly it enough. Died two years later? Yeah, very oh. sad. Um, the longest serving female MP? It, Ooh. This is Harmon. Uh, is it Margaret Ooh. Beckett? It is Margaret oh, Beckett. Right. Margaret Beckett, Beckett served for 38 yeah, years. Okay. Five years between 74 and 79, then related to 83 onwards. The longest continuous serving female MP is Ned? Harriet Harman. Harriet Harman, who's been past mm, point. Mother of the house. <laughs> mother of the house. Who is the longest serving Tory female MP? Mm. Um, it was Irene Ward, who uh, was Wallsend MP from 31 to 45, then Tymouth MP from 50 to 74. How many female cabinet ministers are there at the moment? 
I wish we oh had a webcam for the blank faces. Four says Mr. Paul War. Five. Five says Mr. Ned Simons. I feel like it, it's more than that. No. Six. Six says Miss Cape. Six is correct. Is it? Theresa May, yes. Amber Rudd, well Baroness done. Evans, Penny Morden, Karen Bradley, and Esther McVeigh. Um, and finally, mm. how many female cabinet ministers have there been in total? Ever. Ever. This is probably a good stat, um, isn't it? I'm sure it's not very many. Four. Four? No. <laughs> no. This is cabinet. Yeah, cabinet. I'd say, say... That's too many. What did you say? I said 40. That's 40? I'm going to say 28. Okay. I'd say 32. 42. Ooh. Very Ooh. close. Very the highest good. that was eight under Tony Blair. In fact, the new Labour administration, 97, was the first to have more than two female cabinet ministers in it. But it's interesting that the first... Um, so the second woman MP was called Margaret. The first woman cabinet minister was called Margaret. The longest serving female MP is called Margaret. Of course, the first female prime minister was called Margaret. So really, if you want to go on in politics, change your name to Margaret, Ned. Or like a man's name. Or, a man, or just Edward. Yeah. Yeah, or just David. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> very good point. Very good point. Let's move on now to uh, Carillion. The Carillion bosses are a series of delusional characters, MP said this week, after a Commons inquiry into the group's collapse. Rachel Reeves, who is chair of the Biz Committee, and Frank Field, Labour MP, said chiefs of the defunct outsourcing firm built a company on sand and were blaming everyone but themselves for the firm's demise. Now, they appeared before a joint business and pensions select committee this week, the directors of the company, that is, and there were some absolutely extraordinary moments during the evidence session. I'm going to play a couple. The first is Carillion's former chief financial officer, Zafar Khan, being grilled by Rachel Reeves over the company's debt. No, no, no. Mr. Khan, I mean, you are a CFO. You just said to Miss Allen that the debt went down. Did the debt go down, Mr. Khan? No, no, no. Oh, we... I just wondered because you no, said to Miss Allen that it did. It didn't, no? No, it didn't. Okay. No, 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 Thank no, you. No, the debt didn't we'll go down. Continue with the no. question, Thank you. No. And here is Rachel Reeves letting the execs have it. And all of you are sitting here, multi-millions pounds worth of payment from the company over a period of years. And you say how sad and disappointed you are. But what actions do you take to show that? Because it's just words, isn't it? It's just words. I'm sad and I'm disappointed. I wish I could have done things differently. But the money's in the bank. But it's not in the bank, is it, for the subcontractors? It's not in the bank for the people who are retired or coming up for retirement. So instead of the words, why don't you actually do something? Why don't you give some money back and try and make a difference? Try and put right some of this wrong. It's quite powerful stuff from Rachel Reeves in those clips. She was someone who was talked about for a while as being a future leader of the party mm. in the days when it, you know, her wing of the party was more sort of in charge than it is now. But she's not done herself any harm well, in terms of profile. It just shows that you don't have to be a party leader. You don't have to be in a shadow cabinet or cabinet to make a difference actually in Parliament. You can really make a difference on a select committee by chairing a select committee. And, you know, it's apt that we're in this week of 100 vo- years of votes for women, a lot of the most powerful select committee chairmen are chair women. So you've got Yvette Cooper, you've got people like Rachel Reeves, you've got Meg Hillary on the Public Accounts Committee. Hillary Benn? Oh, no, he is a man. But, you know, you in, in some seriously serious uh, senior committees, you've got women who are running things. And it's interesting, you know, that Carillion session was fascinating because it was, it was a classic where they were all so obviously ill-equipped to deal with that grilling. And you think if they're ill-equipped to actually explain themselves, God help them how they I ran mean, that company. The final bit at the end where you heard Rachel Reeves really laying it to them, they wouldn't even look her in the eye. Philip Green, who was one of the guys, not 
the Philip Green, another Philip Green, literally was looking away as Rachel Reeves was talking. And I don't know if that was out of shame or if that was out of some kind of, I don't even want to look, you know, I don't even respect enough to look at you. But it was quite an image, wasn't it? Yeah, it's quite sort of like the how, when Margaret Hodge was chair of the Public Accounts Committee and she used to give witnesses an absolute pasting, usually deservedly so. It was kind of similar sort of... Um, it was extraordinary. I mean, it, you know, I kept thinking, it, who wants to be a Carillion heir? Can, can you phone a friend? Oh, are you going like, to have like a poll? I'm, I'm in a living war there, zone. There, <laughs> there was no one there. They could actually ring up and say, please leave, get me out of this nightmare, because they couldn't. I mean, the things they were coming up with, like cracked pipes in Liverpool Hospital, you know, where we spotted that. But then we had to undo the whole of the bloody contract to sort it out. It, that was also years it ago. It was extraordinary. And Frank ago. Field just let rip as well. Mm. Uh, so, you know, they didn't cover themselves in glory. Not that they ever could, I suppose. I suppose not. Um, what are we looking forward to next week? Because we're on, we're on recess, aren't we, Paul? We are on recess. When, when, when we break up, is it tomorrow? Is it uh, yep. Tonight. Depends who listen to it, I suppose, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean there won't be a podcast. There'll be a oh god, there'll be a podcast. Stay boy. tuned, don't listeners. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, but we're hoping. What are we hoping for next week? Is there anything exciting coming up? There's lots coming up. Obviously, <laughs> loads and loads. Stuff. Like, what, is the war zone going to carry on during the recess? Yes. Oh, that's what I care about. That's what I care about. Uh, thanks everyone for listening this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed it all, and we'll see you next week. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.